we do not know the melody or the music uh, that was originally used to some words that are very, very famous. The music has been lost to history, at least the original uh, music was. But due to another tune, and most importantly, some very, very powerful words, they are, it may be the most sung song in the Christian world from the last two and a half centuries. John Newton's mother died when he was only about seven years of age. But even up through that very young age, he remembered that his mother had sung hymns to him and constantly read Bible verses to him. But after her death, when he was only seven, John became a very troubled young man. In fact, his teen years were spent going back and forth between boarding school for his education and then going out and trying to be at work in the shipyards and even sailing on ships to make some money. And he would later say that he wanted to do what was right, but his life, especially in his teenage years, continued to just plunge deeper and deeper into sin. In fact, he would even admit that at times he wanted to murder other people, and he seriously considered taking his own life more than once. In fact, he later said of that time in his life, I was capable of anything. But on March the 9th of 1748, the now 23-year-old John Newton was awakened while he was on ship by a terrible storm. The storm lasted all the way into the next day, March the 10th, and it changed his life. John Newton believed that only the Lord could have saved him from that awful storm. And in fact, he later wrote these words. He said, that 10th of March is a day much remembered by me, and I, never, I have never suffered to it pass unnoticed since the year 1748. The Lord came down from on high and delivered me out of deep waters." For the remainder of his life, John Newton would give himself to two things, to preaching and to seeking to end slavery in his native country of England. And as part of his ministry, his preaching ministry, he wrote literally hundreds of hymns, but there is one that stands out above them all. And when you know that his rocky history, his rocky personal life, there are certain lines that stand out. Originally, Newton penned seven verses or stanzas to his poem, And he entitled the poem, Faith's Review and Expectation. And here are the words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that brought my heart to fear, taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace shall lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a a life of joy and peace." The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Newton originally penned that poem and sang it for the church that he worked at in 1779, but we do not know the music that he used. No one knows how the song originally sounded. There is no historian who has ever proven how the song sounded. But 50 years later, 
And that poem was set to music, and you and I still sing the same tune two centuries later that we know as Amazing Grace. But did you notice the title that Newton originally gave his poem and song, Faith's Review and Expectation? That may not be the catchiest hymn title of all time. But the reason that was chosen for his title was because Newton was preaching from the text that we read together a few moments ago from 1 Chronicles. In 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 16 and 17, you remember in that text as we read, David is absolutely overwhelmed out of where he is in this life, that God has brought him to where he is, to be the king over the people of God. And overwhelmed, David wrote, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house? That you have brought me thus far. Sound familiar from Amazing Grace? Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far. What David was realizing was the grace of God. David did not deserve to be the king over God's people. God brought David to that position and aided him while he was the king of the people of God. Tonight, as we continue to think about our one word, we're going to come to a very beautiful word, and that word is grace. I think you'll be encouraged this week as you read from the devotional book, the lessons about grace, or the devotionals about grace, written by Andrew Phillips, a great gospel preacher from the Graymere Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. But as we think tonight about the word, the word grace, I want us to try to accomplish just two things, excuse me, just one thing, but in three different ways. The one thing I want to accomplish tonight is I want us to understand when we leave here tonight better what grace really means. To do that, we're going to do three different things. First of all, we're going to try to define the word as you see it in Scripture. We're going to to see what words are used to, to give us our word grace. And then we're going to go back to the Garden of Eden. And we're going to show two signs of God's grace that are found even after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3. And finally, we're going to come forward to the New Testament and so and see how grace can be applied by God to our life. So we're going to think about grace defined, grace displayed, and then grace applied. First of all, think with me tonight about grace defined. Throughout the years, people have tried to define the word grace in very easily remembered ways. You may have heard it defined over and over again as something like unmerited favor. That's a helpful description or or definition, even if the the wording may be a little bit outdated or takes some some thinking through. Others have tried to describe the grace of God by giving each letter of of the word a different word. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's really more of a description than a definition, but it gets us closer to what we're trying to understand. But... It's a blessing to us finding out what the word grace means because when you see the word grace in the Old Testament, you're really only seeing one Hebrew word. It's not one of those things where it's 15 different words translate as grace. And the same is true in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the word is H-E-N. And no, it's not pronounced hen, although that would be really fun for our lesson tonight. But it's an easy word to define because of how else it is translated That word is actually found 69 times in the Old Testament. In the King James Version, you'll see it translated as grace 37 of those times. But the other 32, it is translated as favor. Because that's what the word means. It means in the Old Testament to find favor in something. Or to be accepted by, to be accepted by 
someone or something. In a spiritual way, it's that word that tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. In what we might call an emotional or relational way, it's the same Hebrew word that tells us that the young girl Esther found favor in the sight of all who looked upon her in Esther chapter 2 and verse 15. This may not mean anything to you, and it may not be all that important, but I did find it interesting as I was looking at this the last few weeks that of the 69 times this original word is found in the Old Testament, eight of the 69 are in the very short book of Esther. Eight of the 69 times. But the word simply means favor. To, to find favor in or to be accepted by. When you come to the New Testament, you see the Greek word there before you, if It'll change for me. There it is. It's the word from which we get our word charisma. It's found a total of 156 times in the Bible, in the New Testament. The King James translates it grace, 130 of those 156 times. But it's also translated by the other words you see on the screen. Things like favor, thanks, pleasure, and a few other things that are very similar. It is the idea of receiving something that you do not deserve. We need to understand That grace is favor given. It is not something that is earned. It is something that is granted. And so that's why you've probably heard it defined as unmerited favor. It is one side of a beautiful two-sided coin. Next Sunday night is one of our usual singing nights, and so we'll simply have a devotional. But the word for next week, I'll go ahead and tell you, is mercy. And these two words fit together so beautifully because mercy is is not getting what I do deserve. But what we are studying tonight is the other side of that beautiful two-sided coin because grace is getting what I do not deserve. And so we talk about the saving grace of God. We are stating that we do not deserve salvation. But God is displaying favor or granting favor upon us by giving that wonderful gift And we think about the grace of God even outside the realm of salvation. Simply the fact that we live and breathe is from the grace of God. Because we don't deserve it. But He grants it. Out of His favor for His creation. That's grace defined. Think with me in the second place about grace displayed. And turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Because in studying recently the words creation and sin, we spent quite a bit of time in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, specifically creation, chapter 2, and then sin, chapter 3. When we studied sin, we focused on Genesis chapter 3, that chapter that's often called the fall of man, or just simply the fall. And we saw some very dark and difficult things about sin. It is a bleak chapter for the most part. Because also in Genesis chapter 3, there are some amazing signals or signs of the grace of God. In fact, there are at least two. And there are two things that God continues to give to His people out of His grace. First, there is the grace of hope. Satan had successfully placed that temptation before Adam and Eve, and both of them had fallen for that temptation. It was their choice. And it led to that awful picture we studied a couple of weeks ago, that picture of shame and and guilt and separation. But you remember that God also gave punishment for the sin to Adam, to Eve, to the serpent. And it's in the punishment to the serpent, who of course is Satan, that we see a glimmer of hope. If you're in Genesis 3, notice what's recorded in verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here it is. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. He shall bruise, the word literally is crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now certainly we know the rest of the Bible story, hopefully. And we know that while it's a very faint picture, this is the first prophecy concerning Jesus who would defeat Satan. He would symbolically crush the head of Satan on the cross and ultimately by overcoming death on the tomb. This is the first glimmer or sliver of hope in that great plan. But here's why I point that out. What did Adam and Eve do to deserve this way out? What did they do to deserve this hope that God was providing for them in what may seem like a very faint way, but a very real way? After all, Adam and Eve were the ones who had broken the covenant. They had made the choice to disobey. They had put their own desires, we might even say their own whims, above the commands of God. They had done nothing to deserve this glimmer of hope. In fact, they had been told that from the moment they ate of that forbidden fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. And we know that spiritually they did because death is a separation and sin separated them from God. But we also know that physically they began the process of dying through those actions. But here's the beauty of what God promised in that glimmer of hope and what makes grace so amazing. Through the fulfillment of Christ promised in Genesis 3.15, both of those would be reversed. Adam and Eve could ultimately have their sins taken away because of the sacrifice of Christ centuries later, though they had no idea what that meant all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And because Jesus would overcome death, Adam and Eve, though they died physically, have the hope of living again forever. And what had they done to deserve that? Absolutely nothing. That's the grace of God. But there was more than just a prophecy for for centuries down the road. Because God always gives not just those sorts of things. He gives what we need. And so you also see in this text a grace of protection. After God announced the punishment, notice what Genesis 3 tells us in verses 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin And clothed them. You remember that after these two had sinned, as we studied a couple of weeks ago, they had tried to to kind of cover up their shame. They they sewed those fig leaves together and made at least something to cover themselves. There was shame that was in the world now. Now they're being punished. They're being driven from the garden. And their life is going to be not only very different, it's going to be very difficult. Sweat and pain are going to be very real for them. Threats from nature are going to be probably commonplace. Leaves, quite frankly, are not enough to protect them. And so God, in His grace, took the skin of an animal and made garments, the word literally means a long garment, to protect them. Again, what what had Adam and Eve done to deserve that? Here they were, the guilty ones. They were the ones who had just heard their punishment and were about to be living it out. And yet God still protected them. Because of His grace... Quite literally, every time Adam and Eve clothed themselves, they were reminded of the protecting grace of God. I don't know how many times 
I have heard people say that there is no grace in the Old Testament. That God was just a, a cruel and vengeful God before Jesus ever came on the scene. Folks, if we ever think that, we need to read the Old Testament again. Because the grace of God begins with the very moment Adam and Eve sinned. We see it poured out for them with a grace of hope for the future, but also a grace of protection in the moment. They didn't deserve any of this. And yet God gave it because of His amazing grace. But that's way back then. That's way back in the Garden of Eden. I mean, that's, that's even before the law of Moses, much less before Jesus comes on the scene. What can we understand about grace? I, I, I know that, that, that grace is amazing. I know the song. And we, we just sang another one that's very similar to it. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. I want grace applied to my life. Turn over your New Testaments to Romans chapter 5. I want to try to show us how God begins to pour out His grace in our lives. Applying it to our lives. I wish we had time to unpack the whole context of Romans, but I know you'd like to go to bed at some point tonight. And it's, very, it's, a, it's a very difficult book to unpack. But you may remember that Romans begins with a fairly bleak picture. Very, very summary, by way of very diff, uh, simple summary. Romans chapter 1, Paul had basically said that Gentiles under Old Testament times were sinful and in need of a Savior. In chapter 2 of the book of Romans, he had turned to the Jews who were now Christians and said, by the way, you didn't keep the law perfectly either, so quit thumbing your nose. The Gentiles didn't understand this stuff. And just to make certain that nobody thought, well, I had it all together, Romans chapter 3, he makes it universal. Chapter 3 and verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Chapter 3 and verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a bleak picture in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. But thankfully, it's not hopeless. Because most of the rest of the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 4 through the end of the book, is basically showing us that there is a wide chasm of difference between being lost and without God and being saved through the plan of God and that Jesus is what crosses that chasm. And with that in mind, look at the way Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore... Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. Now that's what we've just been talking about way back from Genesis chapter 3. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. It was their choice. For in sin indeed was in the world before the law, the law of Moses, was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Now this is deep stuff, deep waters, and we may be confused, but for our purposes tonight, we're not trying to unpack every line of every verse. Just notice that what Paul was trying to remind us of is that sin began all the way back in the Garden of Eden with, with Adam and Eve. It wasn't just for those under the law of Moses. Even before that came, people sinned. But there is hope. Notice verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all people, all men. Now, later this year, justification is one of our words, but I'll give you the preview. The word simply means just as if I'd never sinned. But notice what Paul says. One sin brought sin into the world, but one righteous act brings justification and life. What was that righteous act? It was Jesus 
on the cross. One act takes all of that away. That's the background to what I want you to see in Romans 6. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 without any comment whatsoever. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our own self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. I sometimes hear people say that we don't believe in grace. That when we preach about baptism being a point of salvation, we're taking away from the grace of God. Romans 6 says quite the contrary. When we preach and we teach baptism, even for the remission of sins, which is what the Scriptures teach, we are emphasizing the grace of God. Because it is in that act that the grace of God is on its fullest display. Listen, when I sin, I die spiritually. There is nothing that I could ever do to lift myself out of that issue, that problem. As Paul would say, out of that death. I choose to move away from God. I choose to separate myself from God. But it's through His grace that God sent His Son. And in one act, the cross and the resurrection, that provides the hope of me ever living again. And so... When I'm baptized, that's when I truly begin to live again. Because that old person of sin is gone. And I'm united with Christ in His resurrection. Folks, I believe in the grace of God. And I believe baptism is the fullest display of the grace of God. Each and every time a person goes down into the waters of baptism and is immersed, that person is trusting in nothing more than the favor, the grace of God. I believe in the grace of God because it's what saved me. And what difference does that make in our lives? If you're still in Romans 6, glance down a couple of verses to verse 13. Do not present your members as sin uh, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Folks, the grace of God makes all the difference because we are no longer dead in sin. We are truly alive. We give ourselves to a different master, no longer to sin, but to God. In other words, the grace of God fills our lives with joy and with hope. It fills every decision we make. It helps us to truly live in this life. It helps us to have that abundant life that Jesus talked about in John 10 and verse 10. Grace is applied to our lives most clearly when I understand the only way 
that that old person of sin can be taken away. And that's in the waters of baptism. A man named G.W. Knight wrote these words. He said, when a person works an eight-hour day and receives a fair day's pay for his time, that's a wage. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, that's a prize. When a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service or high achievements, that's an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize, and deserves no award, yet receives the gift anyway, that is a picture of God's unmerited favor. This is what we mean when we talk about the grace of God. It truly is amazing grace. But as we sang a moment ago, for the Christian, every step in this life, and when we reach eternity, every single moment, if there are moments in eternal home, it's all because of God's amazing grace. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. But you are created as God's workmanship. Created to do good works. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10. I love to think about the grace of God. Because it reminds me that I don't deserve anything. But God is so good that He gives me everything. Tonight, He is willing to save your soul because of His grace. If you'll respond and turn from sin, confess His his Son is Lord and be buried in the waters of baptism, all those sins are left behind. And you come out of the water united with the resurrection of Christ because of the grace of God. But I, I know the crowd here. I know most of us have done that. Most of us are Christians. Can I ask you a question? Are you living every day as if the grace of God makes a difference? Are you living every day thankful because of what He has given, not just in a spiritual world, but, but everything? Do other people know that you're a Christian simply because you are so grateful for, for the air that you breathe, for the relationships that you have because you're a Christian, because of all the, the good and perfect gifts that come down from above that James wrote about in James 1.17? Folks, grace makes all the difference. Or at least it should. And maybe tonight as a Christian you need to respond and say, I haven't been living like it. It hasn't been making a difference in my life. Or I haven't acknowledged that's been making a difference in my life. And you want us to pray with you for your strength and your encouragement. It's all because of God's amazing grace. Tonight you need to respond to that. I hope that you will. I'll be standing and sing to encourage you.